everyone in the Beaux Arts called him Boris. And yet there were only two of us whom he addressed in the same familiar way, Jack Scott and myself. Now, perhaps my being in love with Genevieve had something to do with his affection for me. Not that it had ever been acknowledged between us, but after all was settled and she told me with tears in her eyes that it was Boris whom she loved, I went over to his house and congratulated him. The perfect cordiality of that interview did not deceive either of us. I always believed, although to one, at least, it was a great comfort. I did not think he and Genevieve ever spoke of the matter together, but Boris knew. Genevieve was lovely. The Madonna-like purity of her face might have been inspired by the Sanctus in Gonon's Mass. But I was always glad when she changed the mood for what we called her April Maneuvers. She was often as variable as an April day, in the morning grave, dignified and sweet, at noon laughing, capricious, at evening, whatever one least expected. I preferred her so, rather than in that Madonna-like tranquility which stirred the depths of my heart. I was dreaming of Genevieve when he spoke again. What do you think of my discovery, Alec? But I think it's wonderful. Well, I shall make no use of it, you know, beyond satisfying my own curiosity, so far as may be, and the secret will die with me. It would be rather a blow to sculpture, would it not? We painters lose more than we ever gain from photography. This new vicious discovery would corrupt the world of art. No, I shall never confide the secret to anyone. It would be hard to find anyone less informed about such phenomena than myself. This, I confess, had never interested me that greatly, and as for the ancient fossils thus produced, frankly, they disgusted me. But Boris, it appeared, feeling curiosity and of repugnance, had investigated the subject and had accidentally stumbled on a solution which, attacking the immersed object with ferocity unheard of, in a second, did the work of years. This was all I could make out of the strange story he had just been telling me. He spoke again after a long silence. I am almost frightened when I think of what I have found. Scientists would go mad over this discovery. It was so simple, too. It discovered itself, basically. When I think of that formula and that new element, precipitated in metallic scales and... Wait. New element? Oh, well, I haven't thought of naming it, and I don't believe I ever shall. There are enough precious metals now in the world to cut throats over, don't you think? I picked up my ears. Wait, have you struck gold, Boris? No. Better. <laughs> but see here, Alec, you and I, we have all we need in this world. <laughs> How sinister and covetous you look already. I laughed too. I told him I was devoured by the desire for gold, and we'd better talk of something else. So when Genevieve came in shortly after, we turned our backs on alchemy. Genevieve was dressed in silvery grey from head to foot. The light glinted along the soft curves of her fair hair as she turned her cheek to Boris. Then she saw me and returned my greeting. She had never before failed to blow me a kiss from the tips of her white fingers and I promptly complained of the omission. She smiled and held up her hand, which dropped almost before it had touched mine. Then she said, looking at Boris, You must ask Alec to stay for luncheon. This was also something new. She had always asked me herself until today. Uh, I did, said Boris shortly. And you said yes, I hope? She turned to me with a charming, conventional smile. I may as well be an acquaintance of the day before yesterday. I made her a low bow. Je vais bien, bonheur, madame. But refusing to take up her usual bantering tone, she murmured a hospitable commonplace and disappeared. Boris and I looked at one another. I had better go home, don't you think? I asked. Hanged if I know, he replied frankly. While we were discussing the advisability of my departure, Genevieve reappeared in the doorway without her bonnet. She was wonderfully beautiful, but her color was too deep, her lovely eyes were too bright. She came straight up to me and took my arm. Munchin is ready. Was I cross, Alec? Sorry, I thought I had a headache, but I haven't. Come here, Boris. She slipped her other arm through his. 
Pelicans that after you, there is no one in the world whom I like as well as I like him. So if he sometimes feels snubbed, it won't hurt him. Allah bon wah, I cried. Who says there are no thunderstorms in April? Are you ready, gentle Boris? Aye, ready. And arm in arm, we raced into the dining room, scandalizing the servants. After all, we are not so much to blame. Genevieve was 18, Boris was 23, and I not quite 21. Boris and I, in those days, labored hard, but as we pleased, which was fitfully, and we all three, with Jack Scott, idled a great deal together. One quiet afternoon, I had been wandering alone over the house, examining curios, prying into odd corners, bringing out sweetmeats and cigars from strange hiding places, and at last I stopped in the bathing room. Boris, all over clay, stood there washing his hands. The room was built of rose-colored marble, excepting the floor, which was tessellated in rose and gray. In the center, there was a square pool sunken below the surface of the floor. Steps led down into it. Sculptured pillars supported a frescoed ceiling. A delicious marble cupid appeared to have just alighted on the pedestal in the upper end of the room. The whole interior was Boris's work and mine. Boris, in his working clothes of white canvas, scraped the traces of clay and red modeling wax from his handsome hands and cocketed over his shoulder with the cupid. I see you, he insisted. Don't try to look the other way and pretend not to see me. You know who made you, little humbug. And it was always my role to interpret Cupid's sentiments in these conversations. And when my turn came, I responded in such a manner that Boris seized my arm and dragged me toward the pool, declaring he would duck me. Next instant, he dropped my arm and turned pale. Good God, he said. I forgot the pool was full of the solution. I shivered a little. I dryly advised him to remember better where he had stored the precious liquid. For heaven's sake, why do you keep a small lake of that gruesome stuff here of all places? I asked. Uh, I want to experiment on something large. He replied. On me, for instance? Uh, that came too close for jesting. But I do want to watch the action of that solution in a more highly organized living body. There is that big white rabbit, he said, following me into the studio. Jack Scott, wearing a paint-stained jacket, came wandering in, appropriated all the oriental sweetmeats he could lay his hands on, looted the cigarette case, and finally he and Boris disappeared together to visit the Luxembourg Gallery. I went back to the studio and resumed my work. It was a renaissance screen, which Boris wanted me to paint for Genevieve's boudoir, but the small boy, who was unwillingly dawdling through a series of poses for it, today refused all bribes to be good. He never rested for an instant in the same position, and inside of five minutes I had as many different outlines of a little beggar. Excuse me, are you posing or are you executing a song and dance, my friend? I inquired. Whichever one, sir, pleases, he replied with an angelic smile. Of course I dismissed him for the day, and of course I paid him for the full time, that being the way we spoil our models. After the young imp had gone, I had made a few perfunctory daubs at my work, but was so thoroughly out of humor that it took me the rest of the afternoon to undo the damage I had done. So at last I scraped my palette, stuck my brushes in a bowl of black soap, and strolled into the smoking room. The place was, on the whole, more gloomy and less inviting than any other room in the house. But this afternoon, the twilight was very soothing. The rugs and skins on the floor looked brown and soft and drowsy. The big couch was piled with cushions. I found my pipe and curled up there for an unaccustomed smoke in the smoking room. I had chosen one with a long, flexible stem, and lighting it, felt a dream. After a while it went out, but I did not stir. I dreamed on and presently fell asleep. I awoke to the saddest music I had ever heard. The room was quite dark. I have no idea what time it was. A ray of moonlight silvered one edge of the old spinner, and the polished wood seemed to exhale the sounds as perfume floats above the box of sandalwood. Someone rose in the darkness and came away weeping quietly. I was fool enough to cry out. Genevieve! She dropped at my voice, and I had time to curse myself while I made a light and tried to raise her from the floor. She shrank away with a murmur of pain. She was very quiet, and asked for Boris. I carried her to the divan and went to look for him. He was not in the house, and the servants were gone to bed. Perplexed and anxious, I hurried back to Genevieve. She lay where I had left her, looking very white. I 
I, I can't find Boris or any of the servants, I said. I know, she answered faintly. Boris has gone to Epp with Mr. Scott. I did not remember when I sent you for him just now. But he can't get back in that case before tomorrow afternoon, and are, are you hurt? Did I frighten you into falling? Oh, what an awful fool I am. I was only half awake. Boris thought you had gone home for dinner. Do please excuse us for letting you stay here all the time. I have had a long nap, I laughed. So sound that I did not know whether or not I was still asleep when I found myself staring at a figure that was moving toward me and called out your name. Have you been trying to spin it? You must have played very softly. I would tell a thousand more lies worse than that one to see the look of relief that came into her face. She smiled adorably and said in her natural voice, Alec, I tripped on the wall set and I think my ankle is sprained. Please call Marie in and go home. I did as she bade me and left her there when the maid came in. At noon next day when I called, I found Boris walking restlessly in the studio. Genevieve is asleep just now, he told me. The sprain is nothing, but why would she have such a high fever? The doctor can't account for it, or else he will not, he muttered. Genevieve has a fever? I asked. I should say so, and has actually been a little lightheaded at intervals all night. The idea, gay little Genevieve, without a care in the world, and she keeps saying her heart's broken and she wants to die. My own heart stood still. Boris leaned against the door of the studio, looking down, his hands in his pockets, his kind, keen eyes clouded in a line of trouble drawn, over the mouth's good mark that made the smile. The maid had orders to summon him the instant Genevieve opened her eyes. We waited and waited, and Boris, growing restless, wandered about, fussing with modeling wax and red clay. Suddenly he started for the next room. Come and see my rose-colored bath full of death, he cried. Is it death? I asked, to humor his mood. Well, you are not prepared to call it life, I suppose, he answered. As he spoke, he plucked a solitary goldfish squirming and twisting out of its globe. We'll send this one after the other, wherever that is, he said. There was a feverish excitement in his voice. A dull weight of fever lay on my limbs and on my brain as I followed him to the fair crystal pool with its pink-tinted sides, and he dropped the creature in. Falling, its scales flashed with a hot orange gleam in its angry twistings and contortions. The moment it struck the liquid, it had become rigid and sank heavily to the bottom. Then came the milky foam, the splendid hues radiating on the surface, and then the shaft of pure serene light broke through from seemingly infinite depths. Boris plunged in his hand and drew out an exquisite marble thing, blue-veined, rose-tinted, and glistening with opalescent drops. Child's play, he muttered, and looked wearily, longingly at me, as if I could answer such questions. But Jack Scott came in and entered into the game, as he called it, with ardor. Nothing would do but to try and experiment on the white rabbit then and there. I was willing that Boris should find distraction from his cares, but I hated to see the life go of a warm, living creature, and I declined to be present. Picking up a book at random, I sat down in the studio to read. Alas, I'd found the king in yellow. After a few moments, which seemed like ages, I was putting it away with a nervous shudder, when Boris and Jack came in, bringing their marble rabbit. At the same time, the bell rang above, and a cry came from the sick room. Boris was gone like a flash, and the next moment he called, Jack, run for the doctor. Bring him back with you. Alec, come here. I went and stood at her door. A frightened maid came out in haste and ran away to fetch some remedy. Genevieve, sitting bolt upright with crimson cheeks and glittering eyes, babbled incessantly and resisted Boris's gentle restraint. They told me to help. At my first touch, she sighed and sank back, closing her eyes, and then... Then, as we still bent above her, she opened them again, looked straight into Boris's face, or a fever-crazed girl, who told her secret. The same instant our three lives turned into new channels. The bond that held us so long together snapped forever. A new bond was forged in its place. 
for shit spoken by an angel, and as the fever tortured her, her heart poured out its load of hidden sorrow. Amazed and dumb, I bowed my head while my face burned like a live coal, and the blood surged in my ears, stupefying me with its smiling. Incapable of movement, incapable of speech, I listened to her feverish words in agony of shame and sorrow. I could not silence her, I could not look at Boris. I felt a arm upon my shoulder. Boris turned a bloodless face to mine. It's not your fault, Alec. Don't breathe so, she will say. I could not finish. And as the doctor stepped swiftly in the room, saying, The fever! I see Jack Scott and hurried him into the street, saying, Boris would rather be alone. We crossed the street into our own apartments, and that night, seeing as I was going to be ill too, we went to the doctor again. The last thing I recollect, with any distinctness, was hearing Jack say, For heaven's sake, doctor, what ails him to wear a face like that? And I thought of the king in yellow and the pallid mask. I was very ill for the strain of two years, which I had endured since that fatal May morning when Genevieve murmured, I love you, but I think I love Boris best, told on me at last. I had never imagined that it could become more than I could endure. Outwardly tranquil, I had deceived myself again. Although the inward battle raged night after night, and I, lying alone in my room, cursed myself for rebellious thoughts unloyal to Boris and unworthy of Genevieve, the morning always brought relief, and I returned to Genevieve and to my dear Boris, with a heart washed clean by the tempests of the night. Never in word or deed or thought, while with them, had I betrayed my sorrow even to myself. The mask of self-deception was no longer a mask for me. It was a part of me. Night lifted it, laying bare the stifled truth below, and when the day broke, the mask fell back again of its own accord. These thoughts passed through my troubled mind as I lay sick, but they were hopelessly entangled with visions of white creatures, heavy as stone, crawling about in Boris's basin, with the wolf's head on the rug, foaming and snapping at Genevieve, who lay smiling beside it. I thought, too, of the king in yellow wrapped in the fantastic colors of his tattered mantle, and that bitter cry of Casilda. Feverishly, I struggled to put it from me, but I saw the lake of Holly, thin and blank, without a ripple or wind to stir it, and I saw the towers of Carcosa behind the moon, on the brine, the Hades, alive, hostile, glided through the clouds, with troubled and fucked, as they passed through the scarlet chambers with the king There were always crowds of faces about me, mostly strange, but a few I recognized, Boris among them. Afterward, they told me that this could not have been, but I know that at least once he was bent over me. It was only a touch, a faint echo of his voice, when the clouds settled back on my senses and I lost him. But he did stand there, and bend over me, once at least. At last, one morning, I awoke to find the sunlight falling across my bed, and Jack Scott reading beside me. I had not strength enough to speak aloud, neither could I think, much less remember. But I could smile feebly, as Jack's eye met mine, and when he jumped up and asked eagerly if I want anything, I could whisper, Yes, Boris. Jack moved to the head of my bed and leaned down to arrange my pillow. I did not see his face, but he answered heartily. You must wait, Alec. You're too weak to see even Boris. I waited, and I grew strong. In a few days, I was able to see whom I would, but meanwhile, I had thought and remembered. From the moment when all the past grew clear again in my mind, I never doubted what I should do when the time came, and I felt sure that Boris would resolve upon the same course, so far as he was concerned. As to what pertained to me alone, I knew he would see that also, as I did. Meanwhile, I said over and over to myself, how would it be when life began again for all of us? 
we would take up our relations exactly as they were before Genevieve fell ill. Boris and I would look into each other's eyes, and there would be neither rancor nor cowardice nor mistrust in that glance. Be with them again for a little while in the dear intimacy of their home, and then, without pretext or explanation, I would disappear from their lives forever. Boris would know. Genevieve, the only comfort was that she would never know. It seemed, as I thought it over, that I had found the meaning of that sense of obligation which had persisted all through my delirium, and the only possible answer to it. So, when I was quite ready, I beckoned Jack to me one day and said, Jack, I want Boris at once, and take my dearest greeting to Genevieve. When at last she made me understand that they were both dead, I fell into a wild rage that tore all my little convalescent strength to atoms. I raved and cursed myself into a relapse, from which I crawled forth some weeks afterward, a boy of twenty-one who believed that his youth was gone forever. I seemed to pass the capability of further suffering. And one day, when Jack handed me a letter and the keys to Boris's house, I took them without a tremor and asked him to tell me all. It was cruel of me to ask him, but there was no help for it. And he leaned wearily on his thin hands to reopen the wound, which could never entirely heal. He began very quietly. Alec. Unless you have a clue that I know nothing about, you will not be able to explain any more than I what has happened. I suspect that you would rather not hear the details, but you must learn them, else I would spare the relation. God knows I wish I could be spared the telling. I shall use few words. That day when I left you in the doctor's care and came back to Boris, I found him working on the fates. Genevieve, he said, was sleeping under the influence of drugs. She had been quite out of her mind, he said. He kept on working, not talking anymore, and I watched him. Before long, I saw that the third figure of the group, the one looking straight ahead, out over the world, bore his own face. Not as you ever saw it, but as it looked then and to the end. This is one thing for which I would like to find an explanation, but I never shall. Well, anyway, he worked and I watched him in silence, and we went on that way until nearly midnight. Then we heard the door open and shut sharply, and a swift rush into the next room. Boris sprang through the doorway and I followed, but we were too late. She lay there, at the bottom of that pool, her hands across her breast. Then Boris shot himself through the heart. Jack stopped speaking then. Drops of sweat stood under his eyes, and his thin cheeks twitched. I carried Boris to his room, then I went back and let that hellish fluid out of the pool, and turning on all the water, washed the marble clean of every drop. When at length I dared descend the steps, I found her lying there, as white as snow. At last, when I had decided what was the best thing to do, I went into the laboratory and first emptied the solution that was in the basin into the waste pipe. Then, I poured the contents of every jar and bottle after it. There was wood in the fireplace, so I built a fire, and breaking the locks of Boris's cabinet, I buried every paper, notebook, and letter that I found in there. With the mouth from the studio, I smashed to pieces all the empty bottles, then loading them into a coal scuttle, I carried them into the cellar and threw them over the red hot bed of the furnace. Six times I made the journey, and at last, He was a good man, and together he struggled to keep it from the public. Without him, I never could have succeeded. At last, we got the servants paid and sent away into the country, where old Rosie keeps some quiet with stories of Boris and Genevieve's travels and his sunglasses, and he makes the world of hundreds of years. Genevieve lies before the Madonna and the Madonna Ring. The Madonna bends tenderly at Alfred, and Genevieve smiles back into that calm face. It never would be, except for that, but the silence was terrible. No way I had tried to the door of the mother room, I could not force myself to enter. It was beyond my strength. 
expectancy of what god knows i can only say it is wearing me out nights i dream always of you and boris i can never recall anything afterward but i wake in the morning with my heart beating and all day the excitement increases until i fall asleep at night to recall the same experience again i'm quite exhausted by it and have determined to break up this morbid condition i must see you shall i go to bombay or will you come to paris i telegraphed him to expect me by the next steamer when we met i thought he had changed very little I, he insisted, looked in splendid health. It was good to hear his voice again, and as we sat and chatted about what life still held for us, we felt that it was pleasant to be alive in the bright spring weather. We stayed in Paris together for a week, and then I went for a week to act with him. But first of all, we went to the cemetery where Boris lay. Shall we place the fates in the little grove above him? Jack asked, and I answered. I think only the Madonna should watch over Boris's grave. But Jack was none the better for my homecoming. The dreams of which he could not retain even the least definite outline continued, and he said at times the sense of breathless expectancy was suffocating. You see, I do you harm and not good, I said. Try a change without me. So we started alone for a ramble among the Channel Islands, and I went back to Paris. Instead of the agitation I had feared, I found myself able to paint there tranquilly. I visited all the rooms, well, all but one. I could not bring myself to enter the marble room where Genevieve lay, and yet I felt the longing growing daily to look upon her face, to kneel beside her. One afternoon, I lay dreaming in the smoking room, just as I had lain two years before, and I rose, drawn by the strength of my life's passion, to the sealed door of the marble room. The heavy doors swung inward under my trembling hands. Sunlight poured through the window, tipping with the gold wings of Cupid, and lingered like a nimbus over the brows of the Madonna. Her tender face bent in compassion over a marble form so exquisitely pure that I knelt and signed myself. Genevieve lay in the shadow under the Madonna, and yet, through her white arms, I saw the pale azure vein, and beneath her softly clasped hands, the fold of her dress were tinged with a rose, as if from some faint warm light within her breast. Bending with a breaking heart, I touched the marble drapery with my lips. Men crept back into the silent house. A maid came and brought me a letter, and I sat down in the little conservatory to read it. But as I was about to break the seal, seeing the girl lingering, I asked her what she wanted. She stammered something about a white rabbit that had been caught in the house, and asked what should be done with it. I told her to let it loose in the walled garden behind the house, and opened my letter. It was from Jack, but so incoherent that I thought he must have lost his reason. It was nothing but a series of prayers to me to not leave the house until he could get back. He could not tell me why. There were dreams, he said. He could explain nothing, but he was sure that I must not leave the house in the Rue St. Cecil. As I finished reading, I raised my eyes and saw the same maidservant standing in the doorway, holding a glass dish in which two goldfish were swimming. Put them back in the tank and tell me what you mean by interrupting me, I said. With a half-suppressed whimper, she emptied the water and fish into an aquarium at the end of the conservatory, and turning to me, asked my permission to leave my service. She said people were playing tricks on her. Evidently, with the design of getting her into trouble, the marble rabbit had been stolen and a live one had been brought into the house. The two beautiful marble fish were gone, and she had just found those common living things flopping on the dining room floor. I reassured her and sent her away, saying I would look about myself. I went into the studio. There was nothing there but my canvases and some casts, except the marble of the Easter lily. I saw it on the table across the room, and, striding angrily over to it, I lifted the flower from the table. It was fresh and fragile, and filled the air with perfume. Then, suddenly, I comprehended. I sprang through the doorway to the marble room, 
the doors flew open. The sunlight streaming in my face. Through it, we were heading And then I asked I started to move, and I flush face. And then I'm on the couch, and I'm going to see the eyes. 